Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 606, Barbenheimer on Blast. Big Chillians, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, you are uh, really practicing what you preach, and <laughs> I can tell. I can tell you really, you've really stopped drinking. You're not going out. And you're trying to trying to lie to me and, and get video proof that you're not drinking. No, you're no, no. You're trying to get video proof. I'm not trying to do anything. No, you said prove it to oh. me when I called you out on the I'm not drinking, and then that next day you are out till two in the morning, and then the next day you're also drinking margaritas, sunny side with Vasilis. <laughs> Frozen margaritas, I'll have you know. Oh, frozen, okay. frozen passion fruit margaritas. After we had gone to see the the Barbie movie, so I, I guess I'll <laughs> we'll save that maybe for when we get onto the Barbie movie Oppenheimer discussion. I guess Barbie a later. Yeah, later in the episode because I suppose yes. for we, for those who haven't seen it, there will be some spoilers involved. We can try and avoid most, but we have both seen both movies now. I'll say this. We can't really spoil Oppenheimer. Fundamentally, <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, true. You, okay, maybe you're totally unfamiliar with either the Manhattan Project or the life of Oppenheimer. I get that. But we kind of can't spoil the movie. Barbie, we could kind of spoil, yes. but we'll we'll try and avoid that. But Oppenheimer, I guess we can speak pretty freely about because, yeah. you know, you, you should have some awareness as to what the major plot points are in that movie. But first, I guess we can start with some sports. Yeah, it was nearly a really good day for me today. I woke up this morning and I tuned in to watch the women, the Women's World Cup, the U.S. women I, against I Portugal. Knew this is what you were going to start with. I and, knew it. <laughs> and they went, They were so close to being knocked out in the group stages. Portugal hit the post in injury time. Had Portugal won, it would have knocked the U.S. women out. And I don't really care what happens. But as I said a couple of weeks ago, after that, t- that TV commercial already looks bad. The fact that they came within a, a sort of an inch or two of being knocked out in the group stages, the who can beat us TV commercial does not look great. Well, I mean, considering, too, they had a, a 0-0 draw and a 1-1 draw, and their yeah. only win is against the team that let up 37 goals. Yeah. yeah. Thailand, <laughs> so. who, who lost 7-0 today. Yeah. No, it's, um, they don't look great, but still, ultimately, this it does just feel like as it often does with very good teams, that they will, over the course of the sort yeah. of knockout stages, figure it out. And you know? they are a very young team, young team, and also a team with a lot of transition in their roster. So this, I mean, yes, they've played together a decent amount, but they haven't gone through multiple World Cups, you know, like the team in the last World Cup had pretty much been uh, almost an identical team to the World Cup before. Like, this is a, it's a predominantly new roster for them so that will definitely help them just making it out of the group stage and having more opportunity to play together and maybe get a good draw and you know get a good win under your belt and then kind of cruise from there but we'll see they don't they don't look spectacular i've watched about one and a half matches and they don't they don't look that great no they're they're making heavy weather of it but 
Yeah, it's and and I mean it was it's a great day for you too, because it's the start of glorious Goodwood. It's your favorite oh, moment in I in, know. Brit- in British horse racing. So we we both nearly had dream days. So <laughs> hey, you didn't mention the England women's team though. I did watch them beat China. Yeah. I stopped also, when I got to f- also advanced. I stopped when I got to five one, so I don't actually know if they scored again. But yeah, they won all three of their group stage games, which I think surprises people slightly because obviously, even though they're coming in as European champions, they're also missing a couple of key players. And I don't think expectations were maybe as high as you would expect for defending European champions going into a World Cup. But so far, so good. And we'll have to see if that can continue. Yeah, it's tough to actually watch any of the, the World Cup here for me because most of the matches are because they're women midnight or 3 a.m. <laughs> no, like I would, I would definitely watch them for sure. No, like, I just, they were to, on. I just, I'm not like you, the, you know, Hey, I don't know. I don't, I, again, I'll say I, I don't, you know, the standard of women's international women's football has increased significantly over the last sort of 10 or so years. There was the period to me, which, where obviously it was only really the U.S. which had a professional version of the game. And so you just had sort of a cakewalk for the U.S. women's team against 95% of the nations out there. I still think, and there's nothing, A, there's no reason to compare it with the men's game, nor is there anything wrong with I guess this is sometimes the frustrating thing when you talk about women's sports at times. There's an unwillingness from some huge fans of the women's game to admit that anything isn't perfect. And it's impossible to watch this Women's World Cup and see a team like Thailand taking part and think that that is high quality sport. Like if 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 this were any other, you know, it not to not to compare, but if there were a team turning up to the US to the men's World Cup who were losing we're conceding 20 plus goals in the group stages. You would just think they don't deserve to be there. There's no, so that would be my only issue, but the group stages, there's now enough teams of a high enough standard where, you know, the knockout stages will be uh, interesting. So that's, and it's open. There's a handful of teams that could win it. So I will certainly watch and enjoy the, the knockout stages. Let's leave Thailand out of it, Eddie, because it's Vietnam. That, that's Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make me look great on multiple fronts. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's... Yeah, that... you're. I think you see that a little more in the women's game than the men's game, like this like disparity in some of the teams. So the like the Philippines are a unique example where the Philippines is actually, I think... I saw it was out of the 25 members, 22 are American born players. And, you know, their their stat line is one and eight. You know, they have one goal, eight given up, but yet they still have a win. It's crazy. Like some, some of these stat lines you're seeing in, in, are, are insane. Um, but you, you do see that a little more. So I think it'll be really good to get out of the group stage and get to the knockout stage where I think most of the matches then are going to be super, super competitive, which they should be. I mean, um, but I don't think you're going to see any of these seven nil stat lines anymore, which will be no, nice. Prob- yeah, no. And, and look, there's, there's nothing wrong. If, you know, let's not forget that sort of, you know, Germany, 
destroyed Brazil in the semifinals of the 2014 Men's World Cup. So you can have huge victories and huge scorelines at any level of, of any version of the game. But yeah, it's just, it does feel like there's, you know, sort of 20 to 30% of the Women's World Cup participants who are still way behind yeah. uh, the others to the point where you just know they have absolutely no chance of even sort of sneaking a draw. And I don't think that's usually the case now. Again, in the men's game, you don't have to go back that far where that was also the case. I mean, like, I think in our lifetimes, it's one of where we've seen one of the biggest sort of changes in, in the men's game looking at stuff like European qualifiers before you used to consistently see teams turn up and beat another team, you know, 10 nil, 15 nil, 20 nil when they were playing like San Marino or Gibraltar and stuff. And nowadays those teams aren't competitive, but they are now good enough where, you know, they'll lose four nil. And that's, that's a significant improvement over where they were. So, you know, it's, it's true in, in, in all versions, but yeah, it would be. And, and and obviously, I mean, acknowledge the fact that a lot of this isn't because the players aren't good, but because they're not having the opportunity. So again, going back to the Philippines, this was a, a team that for like five years ago was practicing on literal like dirt pitches in the middle of nowhere. And they've now invested a lot of money and they actually made the World Cup. And that's a huge progress for that team. So I think maybe as more money is put into the women's game and more and more people are watching it and contributing that those teams will have the opportunity to develop. I'm not saying that they're not good because the, you know, like the actual athletes aren't good, but they don't have the conditions to be a proper national club. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, you know, and, and England is a great example of that. The investment that's gone into the women's game in England over the last 20 years is now paying massive dividends in terms of both the, the quality of the play and the players and also the, the success that the nation is then having, which, again, was kind of inconceivable 20 years ago for the most part. So, yeah, you know, but anyway, we'll see. We'll, we'll stay on top of it as the, as the knockout stages progress. I guess we can do a quick maybe Ashes wrap-up before we move on to other things. Obviously, the, the Ashes, the fifth test finished yesterday uh, with England managing at one point looked as if they were not really in a position to win it, it, they went into day four in a dominant position and in then a position by, to win yeah. <laughs> then not in a position to win <laughs> and then by midway through day five it started to look as if maybe rain was going to save them from a 3-1 defeat in the series uh, and then Cricket's a funny game in test cricket. It's one of those things where once you're chasing 350-ish, 350-plus, no matter how good of a start you get off to, it's it's one of those where the history of the game just tells you it's a tough total to chase. And once it, Australia started losing wickets, they were basically bowled out for 200 on the final day. Because if you sort of take away their you know, 130-something not out that they were overnight. Uh, so it kind of and in the end, England won rather comfortably by 50 runs, which didn't look like that was going to be the case. The, the really big uh, talking point, I suppose, is Stuart Broad, who announced on the, at the end of day three that he was this was going to be his final match in professional cricket, got a dream ending in both with both bat and ball. His final ball he faced as a as a as a batter, he hit for six. And the final final ball he bowled as a bowler, he took a wicket. So 
I'm imagining he's the only person in international cricket who can <laughs> say that. I, I mean, it's quite a way to finish your career. Yeah, I I tried to briefly look up that stat, like without I had no idea you were going to actually say that. I, it is an impossible kind of stat to kind of put in and, and search for. Um, so I was not able to look at that. But I, I yeah, I I can't imagine a better way to go out. I, well, let me phrase that. The only way that that could have been better was had the uh, was it the fourth test not been rained out. And I think England would have won that. And this would have actually won England the Ashes. That would have obviously been the greatest way he could have ever imagined to go out with a six and taking a wicket and securing England's victory in the Ashes. But regardless of that, it is a pretty amazing way to go out. Um, and he, he, you could tell the emotion. It, it, he was super excited. And then the tears the tears hit in the eyes about 30 seconds after celebrating. Like it was, you could tell how much it meant. Yeah, no. And, and look, I test cricket means a lot to him, right? He is, I mean, it's both based on his style of play, but also just his sort of the types of the game that he loves. He's, he's kind of a throwback as a player who hasn't chased fortunes trying to play franchise cricket around the world. He's been very, he's been an incredible servant to England's uh, test team. And in a sense, you know, I think that's the kind of sad thing in a way is there's not many players like that around anymore. And we are just shifting towards players who will travel the world playing three weeks of a time to the, you know, for the highest bidder. And he cared greatly about playing for England and about test matches and about the Ashes in particular. And there are not many of him left like that. So that's a little bit of a shame. And I've not always been Stuart Broad's biggest fan over his career, you know, throughout his career. Although, you know, to have 600 plus wickets, I think he finished on 604 or something like that. It's a remarkable achievement for a fast bowler. And just the number of test matches he played as well. It's incredible. I guess the the only thing I will say, and I'm not a huge fan of announcing, I don't like announcing retirement ahead of time in general. And I certainly didn't like the move. It looked like a bad when it looked like England might have blown the test match or were in the process of blowing it. I think the mid-match announcement. I think he only said that because he was pretty confident in the position that they were in, they were gonna win. Or did he really just want the ball at the end? <laughs> it did definitely guarantee that he was like that he was gonna get to bowl probably a longer spell to try and get a wicket. How long can you pull that? Can he like come out of retirement and then like next big series? It's like, <laughs> this is actually my last series. Give me the ball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just, but yeah, in general, I think as an athlete, I'm, I don't like the, this is my final season announcement. And then the sort of, you know, celebration tour that you kind of then have to go through. What about privately to your team? Yeah, privately it makes sense because A, there's a certain degree. Certainly within test cricket, I think it's less important because yes, England will have to be having certain plans in place for a future without Stuart Broad, but I don't think they have to, you know, it's not as important as like a professional sports team where you really have to think about signing players, trading for players, you know, whatever that is. I think in the international game, that's less of an issue, but 
So I think if you're playing, like if you're playing in the NFL and you know you're Tom Brady going into the season and you know this is probably their last year, I think it's probably good to tell the team so that they know, hey, 12 months from now, we can let's try and put a plan in place so that we have a quarterback to step into the fold. But yeah, but yeah. you can't trust him. <laughs> no, exactly. Because that's also the other thing. I just think I know I genuinely believe that Stuart Broad will not come back to play cricket. But I, I think the other concern is unless you are plagued by like someone like Nadal, who's announced that this would be his final next year's season will be his final season. I think he knows because he just he can't do it anymore. And he is going to mentally get ready for one final season. But, you know, if you don't have those sort of physical limitations, I don't think you can ever really know. Things could happen and you decide, you know what, I, I'm i still loving it. I, I still want another season. Like, why am I going to? Because there's nothing like this that's ever going to happen again in my life, which is, you know, what sort of Tom Brady went through. That's why I also don't like the announcement, because you might change your mind. And it does make you look like a bit of a dick, even though... You're not really being one by just deciding that actually this thing that you are well paid to do and that you love, you want to do a little bit longer. Like I think, you know, like that's, that doesn't make you an asshole, even though people treat you like that, like, like the Tom Brady on un- retirement and people are like, what a fucking asshole. Like why? <laughs> why? <laughs> because he decided he wants to keep working. Like this is, this is, does he owe it to some upstart quarterback to give him a chance to have the bucks be terrible? Like, is this? What no, but it's annoying. <laughs> It's annoying. At least he, the second time around, acknowledged the fact that he couldn't have the same degree of fanfare surrounding the retirement announcement. So he at least did the kind of nice thing in that we didn't have to go through it twice to quite the same degree. But yeah, I don't, I just, if I were a professional athlete, the retirement announcement, to be honest with you, I almost would not retire. I almost would just like never announce my retirement. You just sort of stop playing and then you know, like have a contract end and then not sign a new one. And then I'd probably just be honest and say, hey, if the right opportunity comes around in the future, then maybe I'll sign another one. But for the time being, I'm happy being on television or whatever else it is I'm going to do. So speaking of NFL quarterbacks, Eddie, this is just a little a little side note. Um, I pulled this up. Uh, I saw that there was a post on Instagram about five under the radar MVP candidates for this upcoming NFL season. They're all quarterbacks, so it's kind of fitting. Okay. Do you um, want me to guess? No, no, no. I'm going to give you, I think there's five of them. Okay. I'm going to give you the five and you tell me which one you think is the, well, let's say best value and which one you actually think is the most likely chance to, to hit. Because, I mean, the three, before you give me the list, the three obvious ones, Brock Purdy, Trey Not Lance, on Not on Sam, Dar- Sam Darnold. <laughs> no, but there is a there's a trio of, will any Niners quarterbacks throw more than 10 touchdowns this season? That's even money. <laughs> that seems really, really low. Kidding. Kidding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Hit me, hit me with the underrated okay. quarterbacks. Under the radar. Justin Herbert, 15 to 1. Trevor Lawrence, 15 to 1. Justin Fields, 20 to 1. Tua, 22 to 1. 
Russell Wilson, 45 to 1. I almost take issue with three of those players being listed as under the radar. Like Justin Herbert to me can't be described as an under the radar MVP candidate because you're talking about one of the most highly rated high sort of quarterbacks in the league on a good team that will almost certainly be a playoff team that is a Super Bowl you know a team with possibility of winning the Super Bowl, certainly making a deep run in the playoffs. So naming him as an under the radar, I mean, Justin Herbert will win the MVP at some point in his career, I think. Wow. That's high praise from a from a non-Herbert fan. <laughs> it's not though, because it's a regular season award and he he's a quarterback that racks up stats, right? Yeah. So he's he's really suited to that the only obstacle he has is being in the same division as Patrick Mahomes. And that means that the comparisons with Patrick Mahomes become super direct. And also if he loses both games against the chiefs, it's probably yeah. no MVP. So for, like, for reference, he is the fifth highest MVP uh, odds candidate. Yeah. So Mahomes, Burrow, Allen and Hertz are all ahead of him. I mean, Burrow's done right. Almost from an MVP like, isn't he going to miss the start of the season now with his calf injury? Yeah, maybe. So you kind of have to throw Burrow out because I know he might only miss one or two weeks, but even missing one or two weeks, it's, it starts to become difficult to yeah, kind of say that you deserve to win the MVP. Um, on the others of the list, who I think um, Trevor Lawrence almost doesn't deserve to be qualified as an under the radar i get it because it's still very early in his career but again we're talking about the guy who was but, the can't can't miss generational quarterback of the draft who won a playoff game who clearly season, improved last year or or lost a playoff game right they blew the, the yeah. lead but should have won a playoff game last season yeah. but as you mentioned off podcast oh no they he no, will they be won. on a, he right? will be they on a the, team that will win that will division. Win. Yeah, he's definitely going to – they have a super easy division. He's going to put up a ton of stats. They're going to have a great record. So to me, he, what was he? You said 15 to 1? Yeah. I'd rather have him at 15 to 1 than Justin Herbert at 15 to 1 just because I think you can kind of lock – they they have a strong case for possibly finishing the season with the best record in the league, which, which then – Ties in nicely with winning an MVP award. Yeah. Justin Fields is an insane one. That's just, that's just not going to happen. Like that's 20 to 20 to one. Terrible. 200 to one wouldn't even tempt me. Now, how crazy is it? So for the record, I'll go back. I didn't want to correct you because I didn't want you to, to go against Justin Herbert, but, um, the Jags beat the Chargers in the first yeah, exactly. round. It was, it was the then, Chargers, and who, then lost who, to the Chiefs. Yeah, it was the it was the Chargers who blew the blew the big yes. lead. Yeah, um, but then you could also say they blew against the Chiefs because they actually had them, not had yeah. them, but were were in that game. Um, they were in that, and that's when Mahomes got hurt mid game. Yes. Yeah, Trevor Lawrence, or sorry, um, Justin Fields, twenty to one. Aaron Rodgers, you can still get at eighteen to one. Does yeah, that I'd, seem I'd fair? Read. As as much as I dislike Aaron Rodgers and I and I personally don't think he's going to have that great of a season, I think 
having them basically at the same odds is a little crazy. I get that Fields will put up the rushing stats, but no, I don't see it. Uh, as, but, as a passing QB, I have not seen it yet. Yeah, and we also see, I know Lamar Jackson managed to win M- an MVP with that sort of run dominant, but there is a slight resistance to giving too much praise to quarterbacks who are entirely run reliant on what they can do on the ground. So, yes, he could have statistically an incredible season. I still don't, I think there's a lot of people who will say, well, yeah, but he's kind of a running back playing in the quarterback position and we're not going to give him the MVP award unless you literally have Lamar Jackson level dominance and you just feel like a completely unstoppable weapon, which Justin Fields does not feel like yet. So I would be amazed. And also, again, the other consideration, I don't think the Bears are going to be that good. So no, their, their division is their division is open, but I don't think they're winning 12 games. So do you think you're going to win the MVP? Like even if they have a really if the Bears go 10 and 7, I would say that was a really really good year for them, and I don't think you're winning the MVP award as a 10 and 7 quarterback. Like it's just it's going to be tough. We will I guess do our NFL preview soon, but that is actually a pretty tough division to call the NFC North right now because you have the Bears, the Lions, the Packers, the Vikings. You have a lot of like middle of the road, decent teams, no more standout really. Um, that's going to be a tough division. I don't think we're going to agree. That could be a division we definitely do not agree on. So, so just having a look, the Bears over under for wins this season is seven and a half. So basically, so, going five hundred almost. Yeah, and you're not winning the MVP with a slightly above five hundred season. It's no. just. Although you should be able to, it's just not the way the league works because it isn't, wow, you had an incredible season and your team sucked. You need your team to be great and you to be great to be able to win it. And then Tua, 22 to 1. The injuries are going to be an issue there. Is he going to be able to play a full season? Which you'd say probably not. You'd think also they just had to be, you know, sort of handle him with kid gloves. So. He's definitely going to miss games because there's no way if he takes one big hit, the backlash that they'll face if they roll him out again the next week after everything he's been through in the past sort of year. So that would be too risky for me. And then Russell Wilson. And then speaking of handling with gloves, (laughs) Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson. 45 to 1. I'd rather Russell Wilson at 45 to 1 than Tua at 25 to 1 or whatever you said he is. You could talk me into that more, but again, it's the division that just... I mean, you could talk me into Nathaniel Hackett, which is the worst coach in the history of the NFL. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which the he thing might is, be. <laughs> so again, you'd have to, he'd have to split the games. He'd have to at least split the games with the Chargers and the Chiefs. And honestly, he probably has to win both games against one of them. So you... That's yeah. the it, it starts becoming that kind of breakdown of like how confident are you that out of four games against the Chargers and the Chiefs, he can go three for four. If he does that, then if the rest of the season is good, he'd have a chance. But if he loses both games to the Chiefs and loses one game against the Chargers, like why would they be, you know, why would he be the the MVP pick out of that even out of that division, let alone out of the entire entire league? 
So, any other? I guess we have some Premier League transfer, European transfer news we can touch on briefly. Some topics we've mentioned over the the past past few weeks, but I don't know if is is there anything NFL related you want to discuss before we move on? Not yet. Um, I think we're still a little early on that. You know, we have some more some more weeks before we can put in our preview. Um, I guess I'll kick off the European football talk with, mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw, um, Wrexham has, I know you love talking about Wrexham, that's why I constantly bring it up. This is, this is the, this is what you do at the live golf tour to me is what I get to do with Wrexham to you. Uh, I think so- the difference is the live golf tour tour is like actually very relevant to the future of sport and Wrexham are not. Well, you never know. They're make, yeah. they're making their way up. Um, they haven't. They've been doing like an American tour, like other Premier League teams are. Wrexham <laughs> yes. have also been invited. Yes. The the League Two juggernaut that they are. Um, Paul Mullen, their star, had a um, uh, was a collapsed lung or, or a punctured lung. Sorry, he had a punctured lung, and we've seen this with other athletes. Then he's unable to fly home because he can't get on a plane because of the pressure. So he has to stay in L.A. or California. He's currently in San Diego, but he has to stay in California for several weeks during the nice summer weather. What must be such a bummer to be him. He has I'm been at, offered. This uh, is one of their houses. This, 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 Rob this, McElhenney yeah. has offered that Paul Mullins can stay at his house for several weeks, of which he quickly took that offer up and is supposedly on his way to staying with probably not even staying with Rob McElhinney because I'm sure he's off filming doing something, but going to be staying at his house for several weeks uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, I think that would have been a no from me. No, no. Who are you in this situation? I'm, I'm your Paul. Mueller. A, I don't in both scenarios. I do not offer my house because you're right. He might be filming somewhere, but I'm sure his family is going to be there. Now he probably has a, pool house or you know like a guest house he, a casita to, as they call it here on the yeah. southwest <laughs> it has somewhere you can stay so it's not like he's just in the spare bedroom down the hall but i would not offer i would offer instead hey of course we will get you a very nice hotel and same if i were him i would say no i i don't want to feel like i'm imposing i guess the tough thing if you're him is you don't have that type of money where you can just turn down that offer and then get yourself a nice hotel. Yeah. And then you'd have to think if I turn this down, who's paying for me and how much are they paying? Like, am I finding myself in a kind of, but because they have such a PR machine behind them and want to make it look as if they treat all of their players, like sure hotels.com will sponsor it or something. Probably. Be a, they'll be like, oh, what an exciting story. We can have Paul Mullen exploring L.A. as part of the next season of of the TV show. So Now, now let, let me change the scenario slightly. What if it's Ryan Reynolds who's invited you to his house for a few weeks? No. no. Oh, really? Oh, I so 100% would, take that offer. Ryan Reynolds would tire on me so fast. <laughs> they would just be, after a while, I'd just have to ask him to please stop being Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> Like, no, you know, I would like... take. I would take. I would do both. I think the difference is Paul Mullen is actually kind of old in in football terms. Yeah, like, but so I, are they. 
Yes, but I think if you are a little younger of a guy and and you're like, I can stay with Ryan Reynolds for two weeks and kind of like pretend I'm a LA celebrity, I think I might take that offer up. Maybe maybe you're there for two weeks and there's like a party just, there one week and you get to hang out at a party and see other celebrities. He's he's twenty eight, <laughs> turning twenty nine this year. So okay. he's not exactly uh ancient. You can I get it. Here's the other thing is I'd have to know exactly how long this is for. Probably I would say two weeks. Like two – because there's part of you that says you kind of can't turn down the offer of staying with – like what a cool part of your life story to be able to say you stayed with – I mean Rob McElhenney is not an A-list celebrity. But But has a nice house. I've seen on the the show. Yeah. (laughs) He's trying desperately to be an A-list celebrity. (laughs) You know, so he's A-list adjacent. And, you know, Ryan Reynolds, yeah, it's one of the larger movie stars in the world. So I think the Ryan Reynolds you can't turn down. If, like, a top three to five movie stars in the world invites you to stay at his place for a few weeks and just hang out, I don't think you could turn that down. Top three to five might be generous in the Ryan Reynolds movie star rankings, but I I get your point. Let's call him top 30. Wow. He's not top 10. I think he might be top 10. In terms of recognizable names? No. Not like in terms of like the quality of the movies. Sure. Because I mean, for example, like The Rock is higher than him, but they uh, I'm not saying The Rock makes better movies. Maybe maybe someone I don't stay at. <laughs> that could be the one. <laughs> now he would tire on me in 5 <laughs> minutes. I'm amazed that you would say that. I would have thought the the prospect of like working out with the Rock with, for two weeks would be enough to get. I know interested. that you're right. That that would that that's the five minutes. If it weren't for the fact that we could do a workout together, I don't think I'd last a minute. <laughs> and you'd get to see all of the steroids he's taking. Yeah, you get to really, really get in real insight into exactly what he's on at any one moment in time. <laughs> No, wait, I want to do one more. What if it's someone like, like I'm going to start throwing a random name, like Colin Firth. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Were you thinking Colin Farrell there? And he threw him no. Colin Firth. You no, really I'm meant not. Colin yeah, Firth. Like a very good actor, like like extremely, you know, well-respected no. as an actor, but just like older, not probably not very much fun. You know, he's not partying every day. <laughs> No, I mean, like, okay, there is another element here, right? He does know them. So this isn't just a random actor offering you to stay with them. Like, he has some kind of relationship with them. So in this scenario, I'm semi-friendly with Colin Firth? Uh, yeah, he, so he is a major investor in a company you work for, and okay. you've met him at, like, four or five company retreats. Okay. Um, it's a, still a, would be a no. He's a he's a huge Rovers fan. It's still a no. That's how that's how you've connected. You found out okay. that he's a Blackburn supporter. You've talked to the retreats about your and love has, for Blackburn. Okay, can I throw in them? What seals the deal? He then says to me, as part of the eval, inviting me to to stay, that he's an executive producer on an upcoming Hemingway project. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that while and then I all two weeks you just act as Hemingway at his just, house. I, I we just read lines together just to see. We do some screen tests. Oh, I thought you were gonna like method act at his house. Oh like, no, yeah, like of course. You're just sit. You're sitting at the table. It's like Eddie. Uh, what 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 have you been doing at the table all day? Just writing. Just no, no. Listen, listen to this it, prose I've written, and you just mistake, read like a line mistake, from a Hemingway Mistake movie. number one, Frank. If he called me Eddie, I wouldn't even look at him. <laughs> I would not acknowledge the fact that he was addressing me until he said Ernest or Mr. Hemingway. Or E.H. Yeah, and then we could discuss what I've done with my day. But, I mean, it's not really method acting when it's just just I get to play myself. That's funny. But, yeah. So, but no, I mean, because I just think fundamentally it is just your rich boss offering you to stay with them. Like, that's the scenario. And there is, that would always be a no for me. And I would, you would do it delicately, and I would say, you know, actually, I don't want to feel like I'm imposing at any point, and I also kind of like just having a degree of independence. So I'll get a hotel, and then you just have to really, really hope he says, "Oh, don't worry, we'll get you a room at the, you know, the X Y Z super nice hotel somewhere." But yeah, I would, it would be a no. So on the transfer front, then. Not too much major activity since we last spoke. Harry Kane is supposedly in talks over that potential move to Bayern that we discussed, which kind of surprises me. I know that one of the requirements that supposedly Tottenham are including in the deal is a buyback clause, so a fixed fee that they would be able to buy Harry Kane back at. I guess if you're Harry Kane, that's a sort of nice arrangement because you'd think to yourself that that increases the possibility of going back to Tottenham and finishing your career there and also going back to the Premier League and trying to break that all-time goal-scoring record, which, as we discussed previously, he probably needs two seasons, maximum three. So he he could tell himself that he's going to go to play in the Bundesliga for two, three seasons, win some things, kind of secure his legacy outside of Tottenham in the process, you know, because dream scenario for him is he goes to play for Bayern Munich for two seasons, wins a Champions League, and the same time England win the Euros. And then then all of a sudden he goes from this player who doesn't win anything to, wow, is Harry Kane one of England's most successful players of all time? Need a new trophy case. (laughs) Yeah. Potentially throws himself into the mix as a Ballon d'Or candidate. Like he'll yeah. know if he has a really good time with England and then finishes top goal scorer in the Bundesliga. Bundesliga kind of gets overlooked in, in Ballon d'Or uh, consideration, but still, you know, it, it could really radically change his, how he is perceived in a fairly short space of time. Yeah. I think I saw that they said they are um, ready to break their record transfer fee, which was, uh, 80 million pounds they paid for Lucas Hernandez in 2019. So you're probably thinking 90 to 100 million euros. Sorry, not pounds. I said pounds. Yeah. And then since we last spoke, it looks as if Mbappe is going to turn down the possibility of going to Saudi Arabia, which means that now there's this there's rumors circulating that he might go to Chelsea, he might go to Arsenal, he might go to Barcelona. Uh, I don't know how Barcelona could possibly spin this, that they suddenly have the money to buy Kylian Mbappe, but it wouldn't stun me if they did find the way. And instead, Al-Halal have turned their attentions to Ossiman from 
Napoli. If he goes there as one of sort of Europe's most highly touted younger attacking options. Wonderkin. Yeah. Who doesn't have the Mbappe weird situation of a year left on his contract. And, you know, like there's a way in which it could have potentially made sense for Mbappe for a single season. You'd feel with Osman that he probably ends up staying in Saudi Arabia. That would be a real shame, I think. Okay, huge money secures the future for multiple generations of his family in the process. But you pass up any opportunity to really prove yourself as a, a very talented player. So it would be disappointing if if he decides to do that. I saw Fabino also is going to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I mean, look, there's some big clubs in getting, you know, they're, you know, the, for as much as a, as a lot of the powerful clubs in Europe will complain about Saudi Arabia coming in and, and throwing some muscle and some money about and making it difficult for them to sign players and increasing the prices on everyone. There's there's some clubs like Liverpool with Fabinho getting sort of saved a little bit by and by these clubs coming in and being willing to spend money that they would have got from absolutely nowhere else for a player who at this point is, you know, they're starting to phase out of their team. So, you know, they can complain a little bit, but they can't complain too much but it will be it'll be interesting to see what happens to all these players and to what the future of the saudi league looks like it wasn't that long ago that everyone there was an exodus to china and that didn't last very long so we'll see if saudi arabia manages to come up with something a little bit more sustainable but i i doubt it so is it time for the the movie discussion do you have any other final sporting topics? Well, I think, you know, it's a good segue because I think the Barbie Heimer craze that's going on right now and, and this the amount of money being poured in for people watching these two movies, I honestly think is slightly due in part to the fact that people have nothing to do sports related on the weekends. I mean, there's there's not even any big tennis tournaments. There's no big golf tournaments. It, I, they could not have picked a better weekend to open these two these two movies than that weekend because there's literally nothing else besides you know yeah. your family obligations but uh, you know there's no there's no major sports for anyone to just stay home and watch and uh it's 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 obviously most crazy in like Los Angeles area i've heard people like were unable to get tickets for over a week for for Oppenheimer and for Barbie um but we went, so I'll, I'll give you my experiences first before we talk about the movies. I saw Barbie first, and for you especially, I know you know, but for maybe the listeners who don't, I, I was full in on Oppenheimer. I mean, it's got everything that Frank could like in a movie. It's got science. It's got Christopher Nolan. It's got Matt Damon. It's got, uh, I, lo- I like Emily Blunt as an actor. I know you don't particularly enjoy her. <laughs> Maybe pers- no, I personally, but I find her actor. more annoying as I find her more annoying as a person. Yes, it's it's less so from her acting. I actually probably I've enjoyed a decent number of things that she's been in, but it's yes. more her and John Krasinski consistently telling us about how special and amazing their relationship is. I think it's more about. So I don't want it to come across as me being a misogynist, and I dislike both of them. And again, I like lots of stuff that John Krasinski's in. I like The Office. Yeah. So you know. That's probably about it on the John Krasinski things. And I like A Quiet Place. Yeah. That's 
we've probably exhausted the positives on his career for me mostly. But yeah, it's them as it's them as a couple. I do not need to ever hear about again. Yeah, uh, you know. So I've been waiting for Oppenheimer for a year, but I actually did see Barbie first, partly because I was so dead set on having to see Oppenheimer in IMAX. And there's obviously not as many show times because there's only one IMAX theater in all of Tucson, which is pretty standard. I mean, there aren't many in the country. I thought about going to see the 70 millimeter IMAX, which there's only, I think, 15 in the entire country. And there's one in Phoenix. It is sold out still all week this week, basically, except for the front row, which you'd have to be a psycho to take a front row IMAX seat for every showing. Even even 10.30 a.m., there is no seat but the front row seat still, which is crazy. Um, so unfortunately, I couldn't do that. I just saw it in normal IMAX. But I did see Barbie first. We went with a group. So there was about eight of us that all kind of went together to go see Barbie. The theater was still sold out. I think it was a Thursday night or no, Saturday. Actually, it was a Saturday night. Sunday, Sunday night. At like 6 p.m. Sunday at 6. Completely sold out still. Um, and then I ended up seeing Oppenheimer at a 10.30 a.m. showing. <laughs> I was the youngest by half, at least. The next closest person had to be 70 in that theater. But did see it in IMAX. It's a tough... But I mean, you, the thing that will lead to the Oppenheimer view showings at early times being so popular, too, is the length of the movie, as is, you and I discussed. Yeah. Like, I went to see it. It was a 9 o'clock no way. time, which means... Couldn't have it done means it. Actually, actually, the movie probably started at, like, 9.20. Yep. Once all the previews are done, because that's not... You know, here they don't list... It's not like, oh, previews start 20 minutes ahead of time, and then the movie starts. It's... The, oh, no, the here, previews are... Same here, Yeah. Previews so, are starting at you know, nine. 25 and, minutes you have to add to the runtime yeah, in America. And I will. So I guess we're before. Should we start with the movie I am more positive about or the movie I'm more negative so about? I just want to know what order did you see them in? I saw Oppenheimer first and then Barbie. Okay. But not Oppenheimer and IMAX, right? Just both no, standard. Both standard, yeah. Okay. I, and I will say, I guess the one thing I can say is I saw Barbie in a much nicer movie theater okay, with much more comfortable seats. And that was definitely the, that wasn't an intentional choice, but that's definitely the wrong way round for the three hour movie to be in the less comfortable seats. Yeah. So I have to factor that in slightly to maybe my enjoyment of about the last 45 minutes of the movie, by which point I was starting to become sort of sympathetic to the people who had the bomb dropped on them. So what's, what's, What's comfortable in in Paris standards? So comfortable here is a fully leather reclining no. like chair. I don't want to be in that anyway. I know. I know yeah, you, you say like that it. until you sit in it. I don't recline. No, I, I don't actually recline. But the fact of being in a nice cushy chair is much no, better than being in in like a chair where I can feel a spring up my ass. <laughs> th- this was a genuine. I mean, this is a genuinely very comfortable movie theater. Modern okay. chairs and stuff. Very very nice. Air conditioning. Like, super. Um, okay, air conditioning. Okay. It's France, right? So you're yeah. not, you're not. It's not chilly, but you're not warm. Okay. Um, but yeah, enough space. You know, like nice leg room. 
sort of wide enough chairs that you can kind of pick a nice position and kind of shift positions a little bit throughout the movie, which is also nice. Uh, actual cup holder, which I know that will blow people's minds in some countries, but I saw Oppenheimer in a movie theater that did not have a cup holder. That's insane. Which, which you're then having to like in the Do you dark. live in a third world country? Like, where are you? Did <laughs> you have to dark, turn the projector on? <laughs> in the dark, try to figure out where your drink is, you know, like reach down. You kind of feel like a little bit of an asshole because you know that's disruptive for everyone around you while you're kind of trying to get that drink, which you have to have in a three hour movie. You know, like oh there's no way I, I can't just not drink for three hours. Um, and so, yeah, it's that's. But still, I don't think this tainted my enjoyment of either m- movie significantly, but it's, it is a factor. So before we get on the movies, this is actually a good point. I I have a weak bladder once it comes, like once I start drinking. And in America, the cups are just enormous. So you have to get the large drink because it's just you're getting so much value and you, can get, you don't have to refill it. But I had to also get a snack, which I normally don't. So if I go with someone, they usually get... Uh, like popcorn or whatever, but I'm not a huge popcorn fan. I'll eat some, but you know, whatever. But because the movie was so long, I knew that I had to buy a snack. So I had to like pick out a somewhat reasonable snack. Like I didn't want to get a a thousand calorie pretzel that they sell at AMC. So I got like nice, like chocolate dipped almonds or something like that. Cause I knew I wouldn't last three hours, but once the movie started, I had this internal struggle of how much is enough soda to drink so I can quench my thirst, but not too much that I have to run to the bathroom. So I ended up with like half of my soda left because I was so afraid to drink it because the movie was so long. So that I, I don't know how as a movie theater, it's almost acceptable to put in an extra 25 minutes of previews and like welcome to the movies, welcome to AMC bullshit when you have a three-hour movie. That's like almost like cruel to humans to do that. <laughs> I would go overboard here. I mean, I, I think at least at least half of the theater I was in got up and went to the bathroom mid-movie. And that's stupid. Like you shouldn't so, have to go to the – like miss part of a movie you pay $15 for. So I will say this. In the Oppenheimer showing I was in, one person got up. Really? Only one? It was sold out. And one person. Got wow. Up. That's impressive. Yeah. Strong uh, bladders had, in France. <laughs> there was a pregnant woman sitting directly next to us. Gave she birth. Didn't, <laughs> she, yeah, she didn't, get, didn't flinch. <laughs> she didn't get up. I literally remarked to the people I was with. I was like, this does not seem like as a, I mean, heavily pregnant woman. Like we must final trimester. This doesn't seem like a, an ideal thing to go to. I, there were also several pregnant women at uh, Barbie, but I was like, okay, this is a shorter movie, and I could see, you know, you can't do yeah. as many things. You're pregnant, so going to the movie kind of makes sense. But a three-hour movie doesn't seem ideal. But yeah, she's she, and I was worried because she was on the inside, so it's like, uh oh, is this going to be three times in this movie she has to get up, which is not really that unreasonable. But she was she sat through the whole thing like a champ. Now, before we start, did you see what, um, like, the success of these two movies, did you see what people were comparing it to, like, when this was, like, kind of the last time that something like this had happened? 
I, I mean, I've seen some comparisons, obviously, but no, I haven't seen the mention of like when was the last time you had a, a billion this dollar successful. movie. successful. Yeah. Jurassic Park. And do you know what the second movie was? You'll never get it because it's insane. But it is something know. along the similar lines of kind of like the audience that Barbie would target. Mamma Mia. So this is okay. the most success that two movies on opening weekend have had like this since Jurassic Park and Mamma Mia. Okay, so not Jurassic Park, the original, whatever version. Of yeah, Jurassic 94. Park. But Mamma Mia didn't come out in 94. Yeah, I think it did. Mamma Mia, the ABBA movie? No, Mamma Mia, the ABBA movie came out like not that long ago. Late 2000s? Oh, 2008, Mamma Mia came yeah. out. So, oh, wait, maybe I'm thinking of My Big Fat Greek Wedding, that one? That's, that would have still been after Jurassic Park. I'll get back to you on this. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what I'm saying is it might have been one of the Jurassic Parks, the the sequels that might have also come out in the same time as Mamma Mia. But, I mean, original Jurassic Park is, yeah, significantly before. My Big, Rack, my big Fat Greek Wedding was probably 97, 98, maybe, off the top of my head. But, yeah. Anyway, should we get on to the movies themselves? So do we start with the... Let's start with Barbie. Okay. I thought Barbie was fantastic. I thought Barbie was awesome. I think Barbie, and I mean this very genuinely, should win pretty much every Oscar. Like, I, I genuinely, I don't think I'll see a better movie. I think it covered, like, a quite a complex to topic in a really original way. It did a really good job of getting the messages it wanted to get across through, whilst also still being entertaining and not feeling as if it was you were just having that like shoved down your throat. I thought the acting performances were excellent. I thought Margot Robbie was excellent. I thought that, I mean, I think I, I couldn't really pick out a uh, poor acting performance from any of the no. like major, major cast in, in roles that are actually kind of difficult to play. My one criticism, I guess, Will Ferrell's just playing Will Ferrell, right? Like, yeah, but he plays it great. He does. So, it's, so uh, I, it's, yeah, I, I think what I, the movie was, corny and campy but in the best possible way like they executed on making that a positive of the movie where like you easily could have seen someone be like this is the corniest dumbest shit i've ever seen and like none of this is hitting but it was the exact opposite where like they used it to their advantage to make it so good in so many different ways like just a random one for instance the way sometimes margot robbie moves her body like like a doll in certain scenes was like fucking hysterical. Like I thought it was so good how she did it. Some of the times, like the time when she starts to cry and she goes from like a 90 degree position to like a straight 180, and then like rolls her body over. Like it was done so well and you could have made that so bad, but just all those little things that could have been so annoying were actually really funny. Yeah, no, I thought it was genuinely funny. But again, I also think too, there's no part of the message that it's trying to convey that I disagree with, right? But you you run the risk that it could have been. I think even if you're even if you are one of those people going into it being like, I hate feminism, like oh, what are women complaining about? It also acknowledges some of the struggles of being a man through the Ken character yeah. in, in today's way, society. In today's society, yeah. Which I you know, so you kind of walk away being like, all right, they weren't just victimizing women 
and saying how easy it is to be a man, they also acknowledge that actually there's some complications in that respect too. I watched the movie with Vasilis. <laughs> did he? He didn't get it. <laughs> he did have moments. He was laughing at like things where I was like, "I'm not sure why you're laughing at this particular." <laughs> like he is. A, he's a very vocal movie watcher. He also he does just talk to himself kind of during the movie, which is interesting. Um, for one example, <laughs> he made almost everyone in the movie theater laugh <laughs> because. <laughs> Towards the end of the movie, when he's in the hoodie that says Kenuff, I'm 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 Kenuff. Yeah, he just went said loudly, "I'm gonna buy that." (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's got to get in line because they are sold out in every way, shape, or form. Like people who are randomly making on Etsy sold out. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So anyway, that's so funny though. I'm going to find that. And whilst watching the movie, I did feel like there were elements of the Ken characters that were very close to Vasilis's personality. And after we saw the movie and we went for drinks, he said, I think I'm a Ken. And (laughs) I thought that level of recognition was good. But yeah, it's he got it. He 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 enjoyed it. He loved it. Yeah. Like I think if I told, texted him tonight and said let's go and see Barbie again, I think he would he would do it. But no, I thought it was really really excellent. Like I would recommend seeing that movie and I know cuz I'm normally Mr. Negativity and well that's not the word I would use to why you wouldn't like this movie, but <laughs> something's positive and popular so I can't like it. Like that's one of the things you like to usually be critical of me for. Everyone loves Barbie and I and one of those people. Yeah. So, so. I, I, I it, yeah, it was. So there's been a lot of talk. Some of the negative talk, actually, which is funny, is that people are slightly mad. Mad might be a strong word that Ryan Gosling kind of stole the movie of Barbie, which is un, very unfair to Ryan Gosling and to Margot Robbie, because I think Margot Robbie did phenomenal. I thought she was amazing. But like Ryan Gosling did, like I think he should win the Academy. Like it depends on what they put him in. If they best put him in actor. best supporting actor, then I think he hands down should win this as of now. You know who knows what's going to come right. out, especially with Killers of the Flower Moon. You know, there's a thousand people in that movie, so who knows? He's he, look, he's, he's not going to win anything. I think it's, he, it's, no, I think he might. I think it's no. They're going to win a lot it, of awards. I think they're going to win some awards. They're going to win a lot of awards that you don't really care about. Like they, but even then, I think they're going to struggle because they're getting praise, for example, for the costumes. But like, are you really telling me that when people go to vote and it is them up against something like Oppenheimer or some of these period pieces that are are? I know you're you're saying this now. Let the dust settle on the Barbie love and let people really go. Am I really voting for the? Those are where they might win, and they yeah. might win. Like the movie, the songs are getting praised. So they might win, you know, best score or they might win like a song within the movie might win an Oscar. But they are not taking home the sort of prized Oscars. It's not going to be it will it will be nominated. But it's I, not think it'll, win I think it'll I think it'll be nominated for best picture. 
Well, yeah, because now there's 10 movies, right? So they, yeah. they kind of have to. Like, there's, there's too many movies. And the other reason why they have to is, again, uh, on the back of the, some of the criticism that the Oscars has faced in recent years, if they don't nominate this sort of very pro-women movie, then people are going to be like, oh, old white Oscar voters, men didn't like Barbie. What a surprise. Like, yeah. So they're, of course, they're going to. But here's my difference. I think Oppenheimer blew. And Oppenheimer is going to win way more Oscars. And that is because it's just Christopher Nolan movie masturbation of aren't I complicated? Isn't what I do special? And that's going to appeal because the difference is like Oppenheimer strokes all of the egos of everyone who makes movies. And they are going to be like, we must, we must give an award to one of our own. We have to do it because, oh my God, he makes magical movies. And the people who don't like it, they're just too stupid. To is that your masturbating voice? <laughs> don't I'm ever mas- do that again. <laughs> I'm not masturbating while I'm saying that, you idiot. I'm saying the movie itself is just an is just a process of Christopher Nolan masturbating all over the all over the script. Wow. But anyway, between the two the two movies. Barbie blows it out of the water. It is an infinitely better movie. and But it won't win it because it's not really an Oscar. It's not a type of movie that wins Oscars. I th- Yeah, I, I think it'll win some. And maybe that'll change the tide. Maybe Barbie will win a few that most people don't think it could. And then maybe that'll make way for more movies like that. But some of the other positives... Michael Sarah, who continues to baffle me as to what he's going to do as he ages, is amazing in this movie. But I still don't know, like, what is his role? What roles is he going to be able to play? Well, he he, he has this role. He is like Will Ferrell. Again, this is where this, but I also awkward. really I really enjoyed the Michael Sarah performance. Amazing. But again, this this goes back into my overall argument of I don't think most actors are actors. He's just Michael Sarah, and if you have a part that you need Michael Sarah for, the kind of awkward deadpan will like deliver that. He will nail it, and he nailed it in this movie. But again, like, do I think that that's? I wouldn't praise his acting performance because I think he just turned up and he was himself. Yeah, and he knows how to deliver himself on, like, on film. But he's. All of the parts that they cast, the little individual roles, the smaller roles, they nailed all of those. Yeah. Even even got uh, a random girl from that probably hangs out at VDs on a Saturday night to play a mermaid. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. That's a joke. That's a joke that no one but us will get. But yeah. And I don't fucking yeah. care. <laughs> Dua Lipa, yes. Um, and here's where I also compare the differences on the Oppenheimer, all of the, oh my God, look at this huge actor who's taken a small role. I find distracting at a certain point that you get taken out of the immersive experience because you're just like, oh my God, that's Rami Malek playing a really minor part. Like either that means it's a more significant part than it's being made out to look right now. Or isn't that crazy that they got him to play such a minor role? Whereas John Cena turning up in for a brief moment as a merman in, uh, in the Barbie movie is like kind of brings a brief smile to your face. of like, Oh cool. That's John Cena. 
Yeah. And this is again, where it goes back into my criticism of Oppenheimer. Like it's just taking you out of the experience at every single moment, almost. So the only criticism I had of Barbie was, I don't think we needed the, the second take home message scene of when she's talking to the ghost creator of Barbie at the end and like the white screen background. Like I thought that was a little unnecessary. Like they had a really good take home message like 10 minutes before that, you know, and really put the movie in. And I didn't, that, that scene to me was a little unnecessary. Like, you know, you can be a human like, okay. So ultimately (laughs) the, the element of her choosing to be a human bit, they, I agree with you. They could have just not done that. Yeah. I get that. Otherwise it, they probably had long discussions about it and were like, and which they addressed in the movie of sort of, well, how do we, what's the completion of her character? Yeah. And I do understand that that's the thing that was complicated, but they could have left out the whole, it's a nice homage to the creator of Barbie, you know, like, but she had that nice homage, I think in the other scene when she like meets her and you kind of know who she is, but you do. And then she comes back Again, the real world, like she had two scenes already. That should have just yeah. been enough. Yes. And it's her daughter, right? On the, on the bench, on the bus bench. So you, you get the nice, the old woman. No, it's not. Yes, that's, it is. No, it's not. That's not her. That's a lie. That's just a random costume designer. Are you sure? 100%. That is not oh. the real Barbie. That's been a lie that's been circulating around. <laughs> Because it was weird because it was like, who is this woman? And then people were saying, oh, that's the real Barbie. But then people were like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's a good lie. It is a good but lie. Yeah. That's a great lie. <laughs> but uh, so anyway, yeah, I felt like that element. It wasn't totally necessary. Her like choosing to be a human. It felt little mermaidish, you know, like that sort of. Yeah. T- uh, and kind of just didn't need it. And it sort of also like doesn't really make like this. You then get into this larger. You're obviously ignoring the complexity of this fantasy world and exactly how it's sort of structured. But then it does make you think like, oh wait, so these all of these Barbies <laughs> could just like choose to be real people, and then like what happens to the dolls they represent in that yeah. case? Sort of, you know what? And I don't know if it wants to leave you with that sort of longer bit of thought and consideration but yeah excellent movie really really but i think that shows you how good the movie is when especially honestly someone like you doesn't even think to nitpick like the wait so let me get this straight the plot of this movie is that there's a doll in the real world that's represented by a real but not real entity in a fake world that can then travel through some time space continuum on like you know what i mean but like the fact that everyone just like oh yeah it's it's goofy it's fun like that just shows you how good that movie was but also too because it acknowledged the absurdity yeah which it did a very and it did a very good job of doing that in a non-annoying way of of really just being like yeah oh this makes no sense yeah, and um, Will Ferrell's like, it always starts with roller skates. <laughs> That's <yes>. great. <laughs> I mean, I guess the final point I would have on this, and she probably doesn't deserve to just get overly criticized for a movie that she ended up not being in, but this would have been unwatchable with Amy Schumer. 
completely different movie. Like they, the whole plot has to be entirely different, right? Because the idea that Margot Robbie is the sort of perfect Barbie goes out the window. So then she has to be a sort of different version of Barbie. That's not with a criticism of Amy Schubert, but you know, and also I get the fact that part of the criticism of Ryan Gosling kind of stealing the movie because he's the more fun character. He gets to be funnier for longer yeah. than the Barbie. That would have also presented an issue if you had had Amy Schumer because it would have felt like they probably would have needed to create a movie where she is funny more. And then it probably would have taken, like you would have had too many wacky characters where in a sense, Barbie is kind of playing the straight role in the movie itself and everything, all the crazy stuff gets to happen around her. And I think that works better. So yeah, I don't think I would have enjoyed the the Amy Schumer version of Barbie anywhere near as much. No. Agreed. <laughs> Great in train wreck. Keep her in train wreck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, Oppenheimer. All right. This is so I had messaged you off podcast saying I think we're gonna have some similar views and some negative views. So I think our similar views were definitely on the Barbie. I think our opposing views are definitely on Oppenheimer. Because while I will say, and I agree with you completely, I enjoyed the Barbie experience more. I still really, really liked Oppenheimer. Visually, it is insane. And it's, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I understand what you're saying. He's just doing that because he wants people to be like, oh my God, look at how amazing these like visuals and sound design is. And maybe it was just because I was in an IMAX, so it adds a little bit to it. But the Trinity scene in the IMAX, like there was a point where I looked down and I was like ripping the seat apart, like in intensity. It was, I thought that part was amazing. I don't think it's nowhere near his best movie, or I don't think it will be the best movie of the year. Because for me, the third hour is just too much so positives yes it's visually super impressive the 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 test scene is impressive i thought it started i loved it at the beginning i thought the way he this visualization of oppenheimer's sort of genius and the way he saw the world differently that ability to kind of see atoms and particles and the world bending that was very very cool at the start to try to give you this indication of he is one of the people whose mind just works differently and the way he sees the world is different yeah he sees it like an artist like with the whole picasso scene like yeah he's a scientist from like an artist point of view almost that's all cool but ultimately, here, let's... Killian Murphy. I really like Killian Murphy. I don't think I've seen many things that Killian Murphy is in that I do not enjoy. If the pitch to Killian Murphy for this movie, if all of these hours he spent, months, uh, ignoring his family and social life to dedicate himself to this all-encompassing role, ultimately, all I could understand from that that might have really challenged him was the fact that he got to speak different languages briefly i don't think he really needed him to do that i mean it was like a cool oh my god how did you learn dutch in eight weeks you know like no, that I mean, was the sanskrit reading that's what yeah. it all came down to then, that that bit like there you if that's why he was doing it it didn't really 
add too much to the movie. And ultimately he could have had just someone dubbing over and it would have probably worked anyway. But if the pitch to Killian Murphy was play Thomas Shelby, but instead of Thomas Shelby being a gangster from Birmingham, you are a genius scientist from New York. And that was the pitch. I think he plays exactly the same character. Oh, I don't he, think so. Oh, dude, I, it was he. I is didn't see it. Beat for beat, it's you're slightly flawed. You're a womanizer. Uh, you're also though like a genius, and you're the best person in the world at what you do. And you're one step ahead of everyone, at kind of all times. And you're very, very smart. Like you're not gonna, you're not gonna really become a communist, but you're kind of you can be a communist. And, and now ultimately, like the and the you know you're kind of. Go, all of that bit and like women want to fuck you. Men want to be you like, this is, this is who you are. I mean, that's like that bit of it. Honestly, I'm, I'm, he was good in it. I'm not saying he was bad, but this wasn't a much of a, I didn't think, think, feel like I was seeing a new side of Killian Murphy in the process. Put it that way. I didn't think, see, I, I didn't read that portrayal as I didn't see Thomas Shelby in that. I thought it was kind of someone who like, because the whole the I forget who makes the comment where it was like, no one knows what you're thinking, like you don't even know what you're thinking. And I think he portrays that really well. Where like there's times where like it's really important scenes and it's like, is he happy? Is he not? And like he just kind of gives you this expression where like you you can you can say one way or the other, or you can say that it's neither of them. Like I, I thought he p- portrayed that really well, where it's he was definitely a scientist who who like didn't put everything just at face value. Like he kept a lot internal and you could never tell fully how he felt about something. Like even the scene, like the speech scene, I thought was a pretty cool scene. And and like, even then I still don't know if he's starting to really regret it or if he's really happy about it. What what he did. This drove me insane too. They made it as if Oppenheimer was the only person really involved in the Manhattan project who had, any degree of con like was conflicted over it. They made Truman seem like a complete asshole. Whereas in reality, Truman's on record as having been tremendously conflicted over the decision to drop. And they made him seem like a dick where he was making a very genuine comment of people remember the person who dropped it, not the person who made it, which ultimately it's proven to be true over the course of history more than uh, the movie maybe acknowledges. Uh, and also that every other scientist was either staunchly don't drop the bomb, but you made it right, or uh, staunchly let's big a bigger bomb. Like they, they should, Oppenheimer was the only scientist who was not a kind of binary character in that way. That bit, they obviously they also kind of overstated right some of his scientific achievements. I think they made him come across as a kind of uniquely genius scientific person in a in a whole organization of genius scientists which i think i would if i were part of some other people's families i might be a little bit annoyed by perhaps but see again i didn't when i made it seem like he discovered black holes he didn't discover a black hole he he didn't discover it but but a lot of people have said his like theories on black holes were like way ahead of its time sure but he didn't but the movie makes it seem like he discovered black holes. I mean, it it rams that down your throat. It says the paper that he came out with on the same day that uh, uh, Hitler invaded Poland was the paper 
about black holes. It said, you know, multiple times people ask him, like, what about these black holes? Like, oh But I think God. he was one of the first. He was. He came up with some theories that led to, but oh. the, you see, it's different, though. As a scientist, Frank, you must be able to appreciate there's a big difference there between the two things. And one of them just makes it, there's a few things in the movie, that element bugged me a bit the fact that it made it seem like he just came up with the idea of los alamos like no one had considered going to new mexico to do these you know like he was in favor of los alamos but he didn't drive the u.s military out to the middle of nowhere in the desert and go build it here and they went let's do it like that's all we needed to hear if this scientist from berkeley says build it here let's fucking do it like that bit bothered me as well See, but I, but like the impression I got with the whole Manhattan Project was that like he wasn't the best scientist in that room, and that like most of the times when he's talking about like we need to do this, we need to do that, he's just like a project manager at that point, and he's relying on better scientists in that room to actually do all the work. Because there's like several times where it's like I need you to run these calculations, and you do this, and you to like to start this. Like you can tell sure. he wasn't the best scientist in that room. Yes and no, because. The project, and I'm not, again, I'm not here to like poke holes in Oppenheimer's knowledge, you know, Well, you seem to, I, I think you wrote that book, it sounds like, so. <laughs> but the idea, you're right, yeah, he is the, he is the project manager. But still, as the project manager, it, it's him who has the kind of overall understanding of what they're trying to achieve, right? And then he knows that there are specialists better suited to particular tasks. But, and that's the case. But it, it just... I just felt overall, it just wasn't necessary. My other criticism of the movie as a whole too, the dialogue is too perfect at all times. It is. Well, Christopher Nolan has never been known for being much of a, a dialogue writer. It is. Every exchange is sheer brilliance on the part of everyone involved. Not a word out of place. Not a, you know, like, I will just like, oh, you've, you've said something amazing. I'll say something amazing plus one. And that this is, you know, it's just a complete, for three hours, just a nonstop back and forth between the greatest speaking minds in the world. And that bit bothered me because I, I, again. Yeah, I I agree with you. And I I think this is my biggest, biggest criticism with Nolan is it's, that for sure, but even looking past the dialogue is I like how he doesn't overdo things in movies, but at the same time, I really don't like when he'll put one line in a scene 15 minutes in and then like you're supposed to know from that one line that like this character like this character's life depends and like that's his whole vision is from like a half a sentence he said you know and like he he'll say just one thing and it's like oh don't you know that you know he's so and so and did this this and that and it's like like sometimes it's tough to hear when you fucking film on this IMAX camera and you can't hear shit like if you miss a line you miss like a whole entire character arc sometimes so that kind of bothers me is he he tries to like not hit you over the head, but sometimes it doesn't hit you at all and it completely misses and you lose plot points. So that, that I dislike about Nolan and like along those lines, like sometimes he tries to get too much. This was a movie where he tried to get too much into the movie. Like, is is it, is it about Oppenheimer 
that he's that he's Jewish is is that a big driving point of this movie? Is it because he may or may not have been a communist? Is that a big part of this movie? Like, there's so many things about Oppenheimer. If you maybe focused on them a little more, it makes the story a better, more compelling story. But he kind of just like gives you teases, and it's not enough. Like, it, and then the whole Strauss part, like, there's too much he's trying to put into this story that it gets too separated. And that's where I, I I disliked it. Yeah, I mean, especially at the beginning, the first ninety minutes, it feels like you just go from sort of one miniature scene to the next, which they're tied together. But it did feel like you were just seeing like mini episodes. Yeah, and then it's and then relentless. And like now we move to the next yeah one, and it it does just bombard you and and kind of tire you out in the process. Like, what yeah. was he a womanizer? Like, you know, like they make one comment that he's a womanizer, but you only really see him with two women for like three minutes. Well, yes. maybe it's a little and, like 10 minutes, let's say, back. And, ult- and ultimately three, right? They acknowledge the fact that he slept with three women. Yeah. And, and they don't even like, and then the whole thing's like, you've been having an affair for like decades with this woman. And it's like, was that the woman he kind of talked to for 15 seconds? In, Sometimes flirted in with at 15? parties. Yeah. yeah. Like, Sometimes. Wait, what? Three times in the movie, he's she. That's the stuff at, that bothers me with Nolan. Is like you're expected to like remember that. <laughs> I don't think it's the expected remembering part that bothers me. It's just it doesn't contribute really anything to the movie. Like that's that's, and and look, as someone who creates edits content for a living, and I don't edit movies, I would have got to the end of that and said, "Hey, Christopher, I think we can trim about an hour off this movie." without too much work here like the plot itself will not be affected by this and look i know there'll be people listening to this podcast who think we do 90 minute episodes and you could level exactly the same (laughs) criticism at us so i'm not saying like i'm not speaking from some world of perfection but fundamentally there was so much of that that i just don't know if i really needed to see yeah and it felt like you yeah even if you don't trim it I don't like that you set up for the whole Trinity scene, which is obviously like the best part of the movie. And then you have a full hour after you could have put that better in where maybe that's your climax. And then the last, let's say 20 to 30 minutes is like that ending about how like there's that heel turn that Strauss was just butthurt that Oppenheimer offended him at that. Yeah. Uh, hearing and he's been after him ever since but you could have at the same time simultaneously like put together his greatest moment with him being torn apart and kind of put them in like going up at the same time and then just come down with that last 20 versus like oh he did the atomic bomb like how oh, amazing and then a whole nother hour of like now he's going to be ripped apart and like slowly slowly we're going to end this movie like that I, I didn't like that aspect of it my big takeaway from it in the end, in a sense, is that it was creative to try and cover the Manhattan Project through just focusing on Oppenheimer. But yeah. ultimately, I would have probably rather just watched a movie about the Manhattan Project. Well, they have one back from like the 50s, wasn't it? Sure. But, like, that's not, that's, <laughs> but you see what I mean? Like if you just told me we're just going to do like, OK, we'll start to show some of this, the relevance of who the players are. So we'll go maybe 1935, 1936, and then we'll go all the way up to, I don't know, 1947. 
And that's all we're going to cover. And we'll rely on you to have a general understanding of history so that you know that, hey, maybe a lot of scientists left Germany a little bit in the 1930s. Like we don't really need to build too much on exactly, you know, why they've done that or whatever. I think that would have been, for me, I would have enjoyed the movie more. Also, and I know this is this this is probably the point, you probably liked it because it did a very, I, I don't want to speak on your behalf, but it did make a lot of scientists seem like really cool guys. Like there's a lot of cool people in that movie. And that also kind of bothered me because whilst I can believe that not every sort of physicist is a socially awkward, just super nerd, I do struggle with the idea having met some in my lifetime not many of them are the guy who turns up to a party and everyone's like, whoa, that guy's cool. Not a lot like of Josh Hartnett's? No. <laughs> and, and even Oppenheimer, right? You know, like a lot of the key, the only, there's a couple of fringe scientists within it who are just sort of awkward little creatures who, yeah. who run away from any kind of conflict and stuff. But most of them, it's like, cool guy, also a genius. Like that's, yeah. you know. Yeah. No, I, so... Yeah, I'll end a negative and a positive. The negative aspect, I, I agree with you. The movie like was too unfocused. And if you had a movie just about Manhattan Project, it would have been cool. But I think ultimately, if you just had a movie that really, really focused in on Oppenheimer and how he maybe or maybe did not really feel about having to create the atomic bomb. But like the whole Strauss part that ends up being like a third of the movie. And I really don't give a shit about this guy. Like, well, can I, I, I can I, I interrupt I, you too? You people could have are done that in five minutes. People are praising Robert Downey Jr. I thought he was by far and away the worst thing in the movie, not just because I didn't, I wasn't particularly invested in that storyline anyway, but also no part about him made him made me think he was a character from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. He was just speaking like Robert Downey Jr. out of Iron Man and carrying himself in that way. And it was in no way representative. For example, Emily Blunt, rare praise for me here. I thought she was the best at coming across as a figure from that time period. Yeah. She kind of spoke in the way that people sp spoke back then. She kind of had that... Uh, just way of carrying herself. Robert Downey Jr., to me, he's getting praised and he might win an Oscar. That will upset me tremendously. I, I thought he was fine. I, I I think he does a decent job of making you dislike that character, like as a weasel, as like a little p political weasel. But I just don't think that whole side plot was super necessary. I would have rather just focused almost if you're going to make a movie about Oppenheimer focus it almost solely on Oppenheimer's point of view I don't need this black and white objective point of view thing that Nolan tries to do with a different character I don't think that hit for me what I yeah. will say oh go ahead go ahead well and that's also too where it, it kind of for a movie that's been praised for a lot of historical accuracy that sort of final element is where it it did make it like the idea that he's sort of undone by a single single scientist who turns up and in reality it was far more complex than that and there was a large part of the scientific community yeah. that was critical of him you know you have lots of different things there that where it feels as if because again that in itself could have been a whole movie right yeah. like how this guy's un like tries to weasel his way and gets undone but like he's trying to put so much into this movie just focus it just if it's oppenheimer just focus it just on oppenheimer like you don't need this like I would have preferred if you just seen that from Oppenheimer's point of view. Like, did he realize 
that because he ridiculed that guy, this is the reason that he's going to be undone because he like he couldn't control himself because he got a little too cocky. Like that would have been a better thing to see. That's the bit that bothers me too a little bit is it did sort of imply that he knew that he was this sacrificial lamb and that he knew that Straws was going to get his comeuppance. Like there is an element there where it, it kind of winks and nods at you and says, this was his plan. He knew he was going to kind of lay himself out there and eventually it was all going to come back to bite this guy in the biggest moment of his life. Like there was a sort of, again, yeah. it goes back to the Thomas Shelby element to me a little bit here where that was a very Peaky Blinders feel to it of like, you think I'm dead, but actually I got you. <laughs> but you know, yeah. Like and I think like, yeah, what I don't like about that is I think there is maybe some argument that Oppenheimer kind of took these shots afterwards as a kind of maybe he was thinking like, shit, maybe I ruined the world and I deserve this and I deserve to kind of be beat down a little bit for what I potentially could have done. And that would be fine. But to do it as like you're saying, but I know I'm going to get this guy back at a random moment in time like that part doesn't sit well with me. And again, I I, I agree with you on that first part, but it makes it seem like he is the only person who was really felt really torn about this. I mean, I know yeah. there was the this, the contingent of scientists who were appealing to not have the bomb dropped, but then once the bomb is dropped, they kind of get brushed to the side, right? Everyone gets swept up in the euphoria yeah. of winning the war, and then the only scientists who remain as characters are people who want a bigger bomb. So, you know, there's, uh, it, like, there is, it is this sort of world in which, fundamentally, he seems to be the only one who has been affected by this idea that they created this terrible weapon that killed lots and lots of people and has made the world a more dangerous place. But the rest of them were just off being like, it's okay. We won world war two. Let's move on with our lives. Only he is haunted by this. But the part that I do like that I think is really relevant in today's time. And I guess this is, this is definitely jaded for, for me being a scientist is like, the way politicians and other people can kind of turn on scientists when they want to and kind of try and discredit scientists. And that aspect of it, I think, is very timely. I mean, like the whole Fauci argument about how Fauci now is like this, this, oh, he wasn't, he's not even a real scientist. Like he's one of the greatest virologists of the last 75 years. And people will say like, he, he's an idiot. What a stupid moron Fauci is. It's like, no, he's not, you know, like he is by far smarter than you will ever be as a human being, you know, and like that kind of stuff. It, it, it was kind of really fitting that you could see some, like they just turned on Oppenheimer. Like, again, we argued like he's not the best scientist probably in that room, but he's still a unique generation, a unique talent and and an amazing scientist. And the way that politics and, and politicians can just kind of turn their words against them to discredit someone like that is that I think they portrayed that decently well. Um, but again, I think too much with, with the Strauss character, you could have done it in other ways and focus it again more on Oppenheimer itself. I, but it's nice yeah. to see that. <laughs> it's also a tough one because... Again, because they covered so much within it. You don't get the full appreciation of, I suppose, the risks he was taking by continuing to speak out against the bomb and the the McCarthyism era. And you can't cover all of that in a 
uh, in a single movie, but because they dip their toes into all of those areas, it feels insufficient. Yeah, I guess to, to, to kind of borrow a concept from the rewatchables, which I know you're a big fan of. <laughs> I am. This is a better TV show than it is a movie. Yeah, if this is if this is a three season TV show, like six to ten episodes a season, hour long episodes, and season one is 1924 to 1935. Season two is basically World War Two Manhattan Project, and season three is post World War Two. It's a great TV show, but it's not a good movie to me. It, he yeah he definitely tried to put way way too much into this movie it's it's overwhelming with how much different takeaways you're supposed to have from this movie and at the end of the day you really like it is crazy to me to say i still really don't know what oppenheimer was really thinking or like the you know like I didn't get that much better of a, an idea of the inner dealings of Oppenheimer from a three-hour biopic right. about Oppenheimer. But I think that's kind of the point too, right? Because I think ultimately they would have been speaking on his behalf too. Because I think there'll be lots of people who feel that he's somewhat um, perhaps disingenuous in his, you know, in into the sort of post World War II decision to you know, be like, oh, what we did was awful because, you know, which is part of the criticism straws levels at him in the movie. I don't mind that you, that he, they didn't clear him up as a character. That doesn't bother me. It's just, there's just so, I don't know, for example, do we need to see any element of him being at Cambridge and attempting to poison his teacher? I don't think so. Like, I don't think that made me uh, sort of view him any differently over the course of the movie. I don't, you know, I don't think that was particularly necessary. But so we don't it, then, Eddie. But you can't say, man, not Christopher Nolan. You know, he talked about like that picking up the rock and seeing the snake and Adam and Eve in the apple. And who's the snake? Oh, what a great, oh, what a great little way to put that in there. <laughs> but no, it's a true story. I know it's a true story. No, but, but this, like, is, this is this is part of my problem with the like praising him. These aren't artistic decisions. This is just he has basically taken a book and turned it into a movie, almost word for word, and that's good. But so it's not an artistic decision. It isn't. Oh, look at my Adam and Eve parallels I'm creating because it's just. But he is, is with the whole did. like he has like that snake quote in there, and like sure. you're the snake and picking up the rock and like. I think you're reading far too much into that now. This is and this is what bothers me about Christopher Nolan movies because it's just a true story, and I didn't when he had no. The I'm not. Quote, I, I'm. I'm. I'm repeating what other people have said about that scene because the snake quote to me didn't seem Adam and Eve ish. I mean, okay, there's a snake, but the idea was more once you've picked up a rock and there's a snake underneath it. It doesn't. That didn't seem biblical in reference to me, but. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, that's the bit. And All right, we, I know we're getting along, but we have to talk about, I think what's amazing is Nolan gets torn apart for having like the, the, I forget the exact quote, but basically like the useless wife, like he, he, he has like a one dimensional female character 
Yes, which is he 100%. gets ripped in it, and then he still does it. And he has a great actor who tries her best. Like she really tries to make the most of the four to five minutes of screen time she gets. But like, what's the point of the wife? Like, I you can I I still don't really get it. Was she just an alcoholic who like brought Oppenheimer down? Like, what is it? Well, she was there, right, to just show her brilliance in that final sort of tribunal scene of when yeah. she could click back into a moment of sobriety and and, and yeah, an and alcoholic who who can't take care of her child, which again I know is a true story, but yeah. like seems Although to the- be drinking at all scenarios, throws shit at people, but then when put on the spot, she outwits that guy like nobody else. <laughs> yeah, and I drops mean- a flask on the way out. <laughs> That was the previous day. But, oh, was it? <laughs> yeah, that was that was the that's when like the lawyer, his lawyer realizes that she's an alcoholic. That's when he's like, Do you are you sure you want to put her there? That was the kind of but still. <laughs> um yeah. No, I mean he creates very one-dimensional female characters. I think it's impossible to defend him in that regard in all of his movies. And again yeah. in this, you have Florence Pugh who exists to fuck Oppenheimer. Like that's all she contributes to the movie. And he said it in the script. Well, she doesn't read it. Well, gets him to read it. Yeah. I mean, if she That's... had read it, then if she had read it, then you would have said, oh, wow, more interesting character. But no, she just. Is that where he got the idea to say that quote when the bomb went off, when the Trinity test went off? No, no. Cause, <laughs> I mean, that's a famous Oppenheimer said that. I mean, that's I, one of the few. I know. I know. He said that. But is the like what I'm making a joke is, is the implication that he oh. said that because he's like, oh, remember that time? I banged no. that girl and she stopped and made me read that Sanskrit. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I mean, the sex and I and I said in uh, the sex scenes again. If I'm editing the movie, we don't need them. They don't contribute anything. You could have no. just had them uh, be in a room, hotel room, and then wake up in the morning and have a gun. Oh, they had sex. I get it. Yeah. I've I've worked that out. Like I don't like. Is it supposed to be? Oh my god, a scientist has sex. Like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Like, they have sex too. Like, is this nerdy people also have sex in a kind of nerdy way? You know, like they're, so there was, it didn't, that's seven minutes of the movie we would have got rid of right there. Um, And it also led to one of the most, I mean, if I'm Emily Blunt, probably one of the most uncomfortable scenes I've ever had to film in my life. We won't spoil that, I guess, but the, uh, not courtroom scene, but the, I don't know which scene you're referring to. When Florence Pugh shows up at the the closed door trial oh. <laughs> and oh, okay. stares at her, like if you were, yeah. that's got to be pretty awkward to, to film. Well, I mean, Emily Blunt might not have. I hate to break the world of filmmaking. No, she but. was because there's a scene where like she's staring at her, and you, they're I both know, in though. screen. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I have a feeling Christopher Nolan who likes to make sure everything is real <laughs> true but yeah it's um, yeah it's I mean overall you feel like you could kind of cut the Florence Pugh character out altogether um, but again it's like it's exactly what we're saying it's like he wants to tell this little side aspect of his story but it doesn't really add anything because he doesn't tell it there's not enough told well, about it well, also because I, I came away from the movie being thinking that I didn't know as much about Oppenheimer as I thought I did. 
you know, I'm a big fan of early middle 20th century history. So it's, it's in the same way that this appeals to you from your scientific history standpoint, this just appeals to me from a, a, a period of history that I really love. Not that it's particularly creative to be a man who loves World War One and World War Two, right? But uh, that's yeah. just all you got to do is start smoking meats and you've, you've hit middle age. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, again, then when you kind of so I've done I've done a fair amount of how accurate is it? I'm not going to read the book. But I mean, also, it's based on the book. So that doesn't like people praising it for it is exactly like this book does not make it historically accurate that he copies a biography. Like, cause you'd have to then be like, is the biography accurate? Like that's a weird analysis of the movie that goes on of like, well, he's, he's very true to the source material, but then, well, are you analyzing whether the source material is accurate? But, um, he, for example, she, with the Florence Pugh character, he Oppenheimer didn't end the relationship. She did like the, you know, the him turning up and saying, I, I won't be there for you anymore. Then she kills herself, which makes it out that she is this female character who, whilst not dependent on him, he was a sort of foundational element in his life, her life, and she can't live without him. And in reality, she ended it. So, but it going back to the kind of one dimensional female characters, it's like, not only are they, either just alcoholics or there to have sex or there to kind of push the plot along in one very specific way. They're also very, very dependent on the men that exist around them. So, yeah. And especially his wife who, who I think I had read too was, I mean, they, they mention it in a half a line in the movie that she's a, a, a botanist and a biologist, but yeah. supposedly it was like a very good botanist and biologist. And there's a whole side story there of her having to literally uproot her career to move to the fucking desert in New Mexico for what, three, three years, yes. it, you know, and like, that's never even addressed really. Like and at also, one point she's like, does it have a kitchen or it, it doesn't have yeah. a kitchen. That That's it. That's her saying, Oh, I've, I've wasted my career on you. It doesn't <laughs> yes. have a kitchen, you know? Like, and also pointing out a thing that goes back to what is the stereotype of a woman <laughs> yeah, exactly. walking, in, walking into the house and being like, where's the kitchen? It's unreal. Like, and, and also, I mean, surely way more scandal perhaps not in their inner community but surrounding the divorce like that's a time period where you didn't just get divorced and marry a new person you know like there was a whole lot of baggage that came with that and yeah and ultimately too in in the like minimal digging i've done yes she was an alcoholic but seemingly only really became an alcoholic in the sort of post-world war ii period whereas she's made out to be an alcoholic from pretty much day one in the movie which you know not great for her if you're (laughs) Yeah, no, she's dead. But if you're, you know, you wouldn't be best pleased by your representation there. And like it's it just makes it like the lack of character development of Emily Blunt makes it so like the the payoffs aren't good. Like the payoff with the like bring the sheets in. That was meaningless to me because I was like, does he even talk to his wife? Like, <laughs> you know, like you see like a half a scene where he even acknowledges that she's his wife. Like, yeah. does he really give a shit about her? Like enough to have this like dramatic, like we've done it. Like, like our, our life's kind of complete, you know, like we did this together kind of thing of like bring the sheets like that, that, that had no payoff for me. And then well, also, when she's on the stand, like she does a great job. You're right. Like, that's so cool. when she like outwits him. But it has no payoff because she has no development. Like, I don't buy that she can all of a sudden now just like tear this like prosecutor who's been tearing everyone else up to shreds. She can now just tear him up. Like, 
It's yeah, stupid. I, that that bit doesn't bother me so much. So the sheets bit was interesting because the implication was right that like almost also too, there's an element of risk. You know, you're sort of in the radiation zone of this bomb drop kind of element, which they just move past. Which again is how the movie's also been criticized because the idea that this existed in an area where no other person lived, and in actual fact, it led to quite an uptick in sort of cancer rates in the surrounding Los Alamos area. But but yeah, it's. Yeah, it's just, I honestly don't think it's that good of a movie. And I, because my takeaway from it was, this felt a little bit, obviously the production value way, way higher and the way it's shot, okay, I'll give you all of that. But this felt like a movie in terms of plot and performances that I would have sat through. This would have been a teacher when I was in eighth grade who didn't give a shit on a Friday would have put this movie on for us all to watch. And if you had taken away all of those famous people, if this had been a straight to DVD made for TV movie and the performances are absolutely identical, I think I would have been sitting in a class making fun of a lot of those people. And then I would have walked away saying, that's a stupid movie, but because it's Christopher Nolan, because it's a, a list of, you know, A-list actors as long as my arm, you can't really say it. But the reality is, you know, like, did I enjoy Truman's performance so much more because it was Gary Oldman? You know, like, no, I still just, why Wait, did was you it Gary Oldman? It was Gary Oldman playing, playing I Truman. I didn't even notice that. Why did you need Gary Oldman to turn up to play Truman for what? 45 seconds i mean maybe and maybe that's like that's the proof there that you don't like i couldn't even recognize him enough because he's in it for so short of amount of time that i maybe wasn't focused enough to realize it was even him but yeah you're right like why do you need that i didn't recognize it was him instantly again it took me out i was like who who is that you know you then had the moment <laughs> of like okay i i like I I know that's someone, but that's but yeah. It it's just and then again, it was just a, like a lot of those characters. It's a oh wow, that's this person. But yeah, I don't know. I just don't fundamentally. It's going to win awards because I, I, I mean, I, I still really, I still really liked it. But it's I, fine. It's I, it's I don't I don't think it's his best. I mean, you also know. I think Christopher Nolan overall overrated director. I don't think he has that many good movies. You and Sean Fennessy share a bond of not liking Christopher Nolan. <laughs> We've already done it before once on the podcast, right? Where we went through his his list. And I don't think there are that many for the level, for what he, the kind of status he holds within both the film. Again, I can get it from if you're a, an aspiring filmmaker or whatever, appreciating some of those elements. I get it. But that's just not how the general public consumes movies. And we have to stop. Like, I don't like praising someone for doing something that you fundamentally, like, you don't really give a shit about. You know, like, it's it's like the guy who's, I don't know if I'm, like, praising an NFL team because you're, like, breaking down some small element of how they scheme. And it's like, but you're not really watching an NFL game and analyzing their kind of, you know, coverage patterns. You know, like, so let's let's not go overboard. If you're not the game tape geek, you, you don't. This isn't the reason to praise them too much. And I don't go to movies and 
and get have my tits blown off by uh, the incredible shots. So Christopher Nolan isn't making movies for me. And I have to just acknowledge that. I feel like Christopher Nolan has convinced the world that if you say that, you're admitting you're an idiot. Like, this is what bothers me. Like, it is, hey, if you say you don't like Christopher Nolan movies, we know you're basic. Like, this is what you're telling us. <laughs> and I love that I get to have a summer, in a sense, where I get to be like, I love Barbie, the Barbie movie, and I hate Oppenheimer. It's the most anti-Christopher Nolan stance I could basically take. Oh, I should have written that down. That would have been a good one. Part of me could have seen that coming, too. <laughs> But that isn't, and I want to make it clear, that is not why I feel so strongly about either of the movies. But yeah, I just feel like there's an emperor has no clothes feeling to me with Christopher Nolan. And he has, and the world continues to try and tell me that, oh my God, appreciate his genius. You'll miss him when he's gone. And I won't. I can just stare out the window for three hours and I think I get pretty much, oh my God, look at how the clouds move. Whoa. Yeah, That's see, the... like, I think the genius is the wrong word in there. I think if you said appreciate his abilities as a filmmaker, like, I do enjoy that kind of stuff. Like, I, I really liked all the visual aspects and the score. I think we're really, really cool and really good. And I do really like that. And it kind of adds a new element to the movie. Like, the part where he has, like, the random, like, almost, like, cut scenes of like the like the shaking of like the atoms and things like that like he's like almost adding texture to a movie he's like adding like a new element to a movie i i enjoy that i i, I do like whatever that's fine you don't my, my issue you with it don't is and you're right because you don't no 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 one know. should that's no, fine it's a it's a disagreement <laughs> that's the thing i'm not saying i'm absolutely right or you're absolutely wrong i'm just my issue with your position is it's not like you are then going to artsy movies to appreciate filmmaking. Like your the list of movies you will go to in the cinema this year will be Top Gun, Oppenheimer, Barbie, and Top whatever Gun was other. Last year. You meant Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not as if we're gonna record a podcast two weeks from now and I'm gonna say, What did you do last weekend, Frank? You're like, Hey, I went to this little uh you know, this this kind of independent th cinema and I watched this movie made by this director. Like, it's crazy. Oh. Like, it's... Well, well, keep that in mind because <laughs> tomorrow I'm going to see Asteroid City at our local independent cinema. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> that doesn't count. That it's exactly... A, it's a two-theater cinema. <laughs> that That's what plays into that as well because you're only going to see Asteroid City, another... Uh, director who you also know i'm critical of people love wes anderson movies but you don't see any other movie from a director that makes anything like wes anderson and so it feels the the praise of isn't what he's doing super creative doesn't he scratch this itch i have for just brilliant filmmaking it's like well unless you again like what you like i'm not saying you know and i don't mean you i mean just in general if you like it like it i'm the no one else should tell you not to like it. But it just bothers me slightly when the praise is heaped upon these people in that the people mostly providing the praise are not going out and seeking yeah. other creative filmmakers. They're just like, well, you know what? I guess it was like 
it was artsier than Mission Impossible, right? It's like, <laughs> wow, well done, Christopher Nolan. Well done, Wes Anderson. The bar has been set so tremendously high. No, I agree. Yeah, it's, I, I was, I really enjoyed it, but I was still disappointed with, I think, how much better it could have been. If you gave it a grade, what standard, you know, A to F grading, what what grade are you giving it? Are we doing pluses and minuses? Sure. Okay. B plus. Yeah, it feels generous. I'd give it D, D plus. <laughs> On a good day, if, if this had caught me in like the perfect mood, I maybe say C minus. Yeah, I would say like B plus B range. Just because the expectations have to be so high with that cast. That oh, well, wait, wait. Real quickly, give me Inception. Um, B minus. Like, I'm not a, again, I don't love the Christopher Nolan movie. I know, that that's much, why I'm asking. But to me, Inception, at least, again, I have to appreciate the kind of creativity. Because, like, this is just a true story. He doesn't have to come up with all Off the Off a book. Off a yeah. book. Yeah, he doesn't have to come up with all the fancy filmmaking. Like, at least the way he, you know, the way thinking of dreams and stuff, like, that was, I have to acknowledge the creativity there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm not going to rave about Inception, but he gets extra points for that. And he gets no extra points for really anything apart from maybe about 10 minutes of that movie. And it's a fucking three hour long movie. Did you hear the most egotistical, uh, uh, like take on the movie is that it's low key about him being Oppenheimer in the sense that he created Batman Begins and created oh, and the start of the superhero movie scheme and how it's like ending and ruining all of cinema and that they have Robert Downey Jr. in there as a way to like just mock the fact of like Iron Man and how like terrible it is and how like like weasel and vindictive it is. <laughs> See, it's actually a pretty good take, isn't it? Yeah. What do you think about if, it? <laughs> if he came out and said that, I'll give it a C plus. Because, <laughs> because you know my take on on superhero movies. So yeah, I, I, if that if that was He's genuine, the destroyer of cinema. <laughs> yes, if he came out and said that, which he obviously wouldn't, but if he father did of the modern superhero movie, yeah, I would give him. I'd get. I'd bump him up a bit. But I thought that was again, a really good take. It does that does to me feel like English literature like class where you're seeking meaning that probably the the creator did not originally have. But that's yeah, no, I it's fine. I'll put it this way: I don't think I will not recommend Open. For example, my parents. My parents whilst, are going this weekend. <laughs> whilst, the, <laughs> whilst the subject matter of the movie would appeal to my parents a lot, particularly my dad. I don't, I cannot imagine my parents enjoying sitting through a three hour movie in a movie theater, particularly my dad, like he will. And I also just think they will, to me, it would be like, wait for it till it's on Netflix and then maybe watch it in three installments. You're just going to watch an hour of it one night, pause it, watch an hour the next night, and then you'll probably like it a lot more. I wish I could just go see 
the test scene in a non-IMAX to really be able to see how much of a difference it is, just so I can say whether it would be like if you're gonna see it, make sure you see it right. Because I like the theater was legitimately shaking on that scene. Like the sheets, the sheets, the seats were shaking during that scene. It was and your, crazy. And your sheet, were your sheets shaking <laughs> during sheets. the during the Florence Pugh scene? <laughs> My sheets were flying the sheet up you, and down. The sheet you cover yourself in during the Florence Pugh scene. <laughs> 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 this, this podcast is taking as long as Oppenheim, bro. I'm gonna piss myself. <laughs> but you know the difference is people can pause this one easily and come back to it. I know you can't, but just in general. But yeah, no. Um, <laughs> look, I didn't see it in IMAX. The test scene was still very, very cool. And as I told you, the fact that I Googled afterwards major questions about Oppenheimer and one of them was legitimately people asking if Christopher Nolan set off an actual atomic bomb. The stupidity of the world. And this is what bothers me. Those people who are asking that question are also telling me what an incredible filmmaker he is. And well, I can't take that yeah. seriously. And it's, it's yeah, yeah. And it's because of like, he did make a bomb. Like that is a real bomb. Yes, but yeah. but the fact that people would then think it's an atomic bomb—it's insane. That is a terrible Google translation. <laughs> Bad yeah, translation. I mean, just and you didn't think you wouldn't have thought that this would have been headline news. Yeah, you know, like hey, tomorrow Christopher Nolan is setting off an atomic bomb as part of yeah. the making of Oppenheimer. Yeah, well, and it's it, it goes to the, another thing that the movie missed was in the movie they kind of play it off as like no one knew it happened, but like the next day in the newspaper there was literally like a picture of like the explosion being like uh oh something just happened in Los Alamos and they had to do this whole thing of playing it off as like I think it was like they said it was a like a military ammo thing exploded or something like that you know they had to make up this whole story because people did see they play it off as if like. Even she doesn't see from her house that's yes. thirty five miles from from the from the site. Like completely no, unaware. On. Yeah. Or wouldn't have tried to see it. Yeah, because it blew out windows in in like neighboring towns. That's well, that how was loud the, it was. That was the bit that bothered me. Is you have the whole scene where he has the oh the glass will stop the UV. But that's then, true. I read. I looked that up because I was like, no way. He no, really no, that, did that. Yeah, but then, but then, and then the guy's like, "Well, what, what's going to stop the glass?" Yeah, that kind of sets it up for, "Oh, this is going to shatter the glass. Like, this is going to be bad." And then there's no payoff to that particular comment. No, it's just, "Oh, okay, yeah, it's that was the smart thing to do." Yeah, like, like I actually went blind a week later. <laughs> yeah. Well, the they radiation. also they don't deal with any of that, right? They don't None deal of with any of stuff. Yeah. Like, even when they talk about Japan, they barely kind of mention, I think it's like half, again, half a line about yes. like, and all the people that got radiation poisoning. <laughs> and two people died during the sort of at Los Alamos, not, but in the making of the bomb, two scientists died. So that just gets ignored. And the one bit that, oh, the final bit that just really bothered me, when at the end where they're, when he's going through his, um, with straws and he says oh there's three who abstained i think it was 
And he's like, who were they? And he's like, oh, the, yeah, I know. I knew you would just, yeah. And it's like, uh, one of them is a young senator from, or congressman, whatever he was, from, uh, from, Massachusetts. <laughs> from Massachusetts. His name's John F. Kennedy. Now, it doesn't bother me. That's true. It doesn't look like looking to make a name for himself. That doesn't bother me. The point is, they, he says there's three. And he goes, who are their names? He just <laughs> says Kennedy. And then they move on. It's like, we've given you all the information. This is your like, aha moment of we're connecting yeah. history here. Whereas why couldn't you have just said uh, yeah. Duca, Hewitt, and uh, John F. Kennedy? And, Kennedy. And, and you would have been like, who doesn't oh, put those names together? <laughs> no, you know what I mean? That would have been like, oh, okay. He gave him the list of three. Not being yeah. like, I'm only going to tell you the one who's become a lot more relevant in the not so distant future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's like when he, he does have those corny lines. Like it's in the Batman one where it's like, they call me Robin or whatever it was like that, yeah. like that corny ass line. Like you could make that a natural line and have like, Oh, Robin or like same thing. Like, Oh, Kennedy. But he purposely puts it in a very corny way. I, I also final, final, final thought. I kind of didn't like the, um, his sort of advisor, whoever the who are guiding him through the who turns uh, on him, <laughs> yeah, like that bit. Who like this guy's evil, like yeah. and is like then yeah, sitting yeah, yeah. in the hearing, like yes, yes, he's, he's yeah. coming undone. Yes, it's like <laughs> like that bit was felt so unnecessary for again, just like yeah. not, you're not, it's like you're creating a super villain here. I mean, that it's whole like, side plot was like you didn't need to have like characters building off of other characters that had nothing to do with Oppenheimer. Like just leave that story out. That's a different story. Yes. That's a different That's Oppenheimer movie. too. Yeah. There you go. That's <laughs> the, the lonely shoe salesman or whatever yes. it is. Yes. All that, that line paid off. Yeah. So. All right. All right. Okay. Well, with that, let's end it. Okay. <laughs> talk to you later. See ya. Cheerio. Do you want to pee before we do? Yes. The... Okay. <laughs> I can't even walk. I think I'm like this.